Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Your soul is outside of you and you must claim it. destroyed my life. Tell me, Professor. What do you make of the black arts? were scenes from Abel Ferrara's Siberia, in which a barman in Siberia, played by Willem Dafoe, heads to a nearby cave where he explores his dreams and memories. And Abel Ferrara is our guest on the show, as his gangster films like Bad Lieutenant and King of New York segue into something more metaphysical in mind. With his current release, Padre Pio, about a real-life defiant priest in post-World War I Italy in the midst of mass revolt and the concurrent rise of fascism and socialism. Here's Abel Ferrara. Hey, Prairie, how are you? How are you, and welcome to our show. Now, what was it about Padre Pio and his life story that led you to want to make a movie about him? Well, you know, South Italy in the world, you know, he's... Um... Yeah, he's a saint. I mean, he's a saint of the Catholic Church, and not many of them, you know. The idea of his stigmata, he was the miracle worker. He was the saint of the outsider. He was, um, you know, I'd see his statue and his, and his, you know, images of him in any drug dealer place or any gangster situation or in the back of trucks. You know, he was like the alternative Jesus it was like a mystique to him. And then we, you know, there was something about him. He also comes from the same town my grandfather is close to the same place my grandfather comes from almost the same time and born during the same period. And, uh, you know, I was very close to my grandfather. So kind of, I don't know what it was, you know? I mean, it's like crazy that, that what makes you get, you know, attracted to a, a subject or a person you know we had just done two films about actual living people strauss Kahn, you know with Depardieu and defoe willem you know willem played pasolini and we were going to do this right after that and then we did a documentary for discovery channel that you know really brought us close to you know, his life, and then this specific event of, um, you know, the massacre in San Giovanni Rotundo while he had his stigmata at the same time was like, you know, couldn't, you know, it's like, wow, it's mind-blowing, you know. And what were you going for in connecting Padre Pio's life to the impact of World War One, socialism, fascism, and popular uprising all around him? I mean, it was the facts. It was what happened. It's what we discovered that happened when he arrived in that town. It's a young, you know, he was far from a saint at that point. And he arrived in the town at the same time the uh, returning soldiers came. 
you know, this place all on the, you know, the far east coast of, of Italy overlooking, you know, the Adriatic high up in the mountains. He, like, he came upon Spanish flu, the poverty, the world war just ended, the kids coming back decimated. It was the first free election. And, um, you know, the communist, uh, you know, Lenin and Trotsky had just, uh, you know, basically taken over Russia and, you know, set up shop there. Now, they're preaching that. They're preaching, you know, the, the, the communist uh, revolution in this little town as part of it. So the fact that that, but, you know, people shooting each other over politics was not, that's not. That was not a custom. This was a first of, you know. I mean, it became very popular right after, and then it led to, you know, I mean, they weren't called fascists at this time, but this was the beginning of the fascist party, which then, you know, I mean, it was fascism was created in Italy, you know, not Germany. But anyway, whatever. To, to me, it's like the first battle of World War Two, really. Yeah. You know, so it's like the first 13 of 100 million, if you could even wrap your mind around that and in the middle of this this kid has his stigmata you know sounds like a movie right <laughs> and how in your mind do you connect all these events from the past to this present moment in time and the impact of the present world and where it's going and on you personally I mean, it's happening. You know, I mean, you, you see it. I'm, I'm doing a documentary on the Ukraine. I was just there in Kiev. And it's mind-boggling, you know. I mean, it's like World War One, World War II. It's, it's, it's like, it's the same thing. It's, it's like the nightmare, the opposite of who and what P.O. is preaching, which is, you know, love and and, and, and empathy and compassion and, 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 you know, love for your fellow man. And now, and you're seeing, like, you know, hell on earth, basically. So I don't see any... I, you know, it's like, I got, you know, I'm 71 years old, man. I ain't got no, I I just don't have a, you know, I have less of an answer, a clue or what. I mean, I, I know what's going on. I see what's going on. I understand right from wrong. And I think a lot of people caught up in these things and understand right from wrong, too. But somehow evil takes, you know has a force of its own and an energy of its own. And then everybody just becomes out of control. You know, you know what I'm saying? And what are your thoughts about a time Padre Pio lived through as well, but as not part of the film, when Italy came close to having a communist revolution following World War II, but that was crushed by this country? Okay, what are my thoughts on Italy, yeah, it, uh... World War II... Well, you know, the United States had its hand in, in all of Europe, obviously, because we were here, you know. You know, we came here to, you know, destroy, uh, you know, to, to, to help battle, you know, quote-unquote justified enemy, which is if the Hitler isn't an enemy and, and, and you know, 100 million people dead and, and, and you know, uh, the Holocaust and everything else is not an enemy that's a bona fide enemy now when the enemy is 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 playing what is in the psychology of everybody to create another enemy okay so for the americans all of a sudden our enemy is communism for whatever reason you know for whatever reason and um you know italy had to come to terms with it being fascist and, and they were trying to because the nature of Italians that were going to like not going to track and do, you know, do a big Nuremberg number. They were just going to try and say, okay, we did the wrong thing at the wrong time. And now we're going to like kind of just forget it and try to go in another direction. The Communist Party was strong, um, but not strong enough, you know, because the church is always stronger. You know, it's hard to preach communism here when you in, in a very, very Catholic. I mean, they, they pulled it off in Russia. I don't know how they're going to pull it off here. Because Jesus, if the church, to try to deny, you know, that, um, you know, religion is, is the obedient people is a tough place to do it. Although, 
in as in our movie too, a lot of the left try to portray Jesus as a communist, which he probably was. You know, he was more communist than more left than right. I mean, but um, it was complicated, and and, and 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 making further complicated is the Americans, you know, through the CIA at the time, thinking that they ran the world and they could do what they want, and everybody's. You know, I mean, it's just like was the next nightmare for the world and and for us, you know, as, as you know, as Americans to, to um, you know, I mean, hey, you know, they killed. What does this the grandson say? He's convinced they killed Kennedy. Is is you know his uncle, his great uncle, or whatever, right? I mean, they could do that, then they could do what they want. Now, looking back on your work from King of New York and Bad Lieutenant, from where you've been and to the present time, what strikes you most and thoughts about where you're headed into the future? All right, starting from the back, from from King of New York and Bad Lieutenant, and now going forward into my future, you know, like we're having the retrospect in in Los Angeles in a couple of weeks. It's it's an opportunity to see the people who are still alive. It's an opportunity to um, show these movies to different people. I'm not sitting there watching them. Maybe a little bit. Maybe you know, but I'm not. I'm not worried about what I've done. It's it's in me. You know, the work I've done, the relationships I've had, what I've learned, is all in me. You know, so going forward, I'm going forward with the, the, that experience, that that you know, the knowledge. I gained from every, you know, every film opportunity I've had. And you once said, my life is proof that I don't need you to see what I do. If there's no one to see it, I'll watch it. Yeah, I don't, uh, you know, I disagree with whoever said that. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, you know, an independent attitude in making a film. Yeah, if we believe in something, we're going to get it made, okay? Okay, I'm not, you know, filmmaking is not an individual act. It's the work of a group, okay? So as a group, that's our mantra, too. We're going to go forward with something. We're not waiting for the okay as best we can with whatever money, you know, we need or we could raise. I mean, a film that's not seen doesn't exist. I mean, a film only exists in the space between that screen and that audience, you know? And sure, I'm in that audience, but it doesn't, outside of, of the experience of, 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 of watching it, whether it's alone in front of a computer or it's like, you know, in a big theater with a lot of people, that movie exists between, you know, what's on that screen and the person who's sitting there watching it. And when Abel Ferrara looks in the mirror, what does he see? You know, somebody's trying, you know, I'm trying I'm, you know, happy I'm alive, seeing, you know, grateful, grateful person, you know, I've been given a lot of, uh, you know, I've been, yeah, I've been given a lot, you know, and, um, and I appreciate, you know, the fact that I am alive and the fact that I have what I have, you know, and I, and I have the people around me that I care about and they care about me, so. And any last word about Padre Pio? And what you hope audiences to feel about your film? I mean, whatever they take, man. I mean, whatever they want. Just, you know, take the opportunity and watch it. You know, see it. It's, um, you know, it's a special movie for us. And I hope it's a special movie for you. And you'll have the opportunity all over the place. (laughs) That's the last word, so I'm going to say. Okay, thank you, Abel Ferrara, for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate the question. Okay, well. Okay, bye. And Padre Pio is out now in release. And coming up next in the Arts Express Playhouse, Don't Touch That Dial, concerning an intrepid underwater explorer, the Shark Whisperer. And now, 
From approximately coast to coast, it's Jack and Rick bringing you all the news you need in today's crowded information landscape. Rick, what can we look forward to today on the show? Well, Jack, as you know, AI, artificial intelligence, has been all over the news lately. In fact, some of our listeners to the Jack and Rick Radio Shack have accused us of writing our sketches and commentary with the use of AI. But we want to assure our listeners that Jack and Rick never have and never will use artificial intelligence or any other kind of intelligence to create our show. Isn't that correct, Rick? Rick! Oh, oh yes, and, and that should be comforting for all of our fans to know. Speaking of AI... We have a very special guest today, Mr. Robert Corleone of the Neighborly Rent-A-Robot Corporation. Hello. Nice to meet you, Mr. Corleone. Hello. It's good to be here. Good to be anywhere. <laughs> uh, Mr. Corleone, you run the Neighborly Rent-A-Robot Corporation. I imagine you have all kinds of robots for sale or rent. No, we're uh, actually a specialty robot company, kind of robots we rent or what we call in the trade hitmen. You know, if a client gets behind in a loan or you've been betrayed by a spouse, we're kind of a one-stop solution to your problem. Shouldn't you really call them hit robots since it isn't really a man? Oh, so you're a smart guy, huh? I get your point. They're very realistic, though. Besides, they're programmed to sneak up on people from behind, so no one gets a really good look. They kind of all look like you. Yeah, the chief engineer's a bit of a joker. He thinks he's some kind of clown. But like I say, they attack from behind, so I've never been fingered. Is it expensive to rent one of these robots? Quality is never cheap, Rick. But we offer a long-term three-year rental with an option to renew. Or if you'd rather, there's also an option to buy. We set you up with a finance package through our Big Louie Loan Corporation subsidiary. So it's kind of like a car rental or, or a computer rental. Yeah, you got it. And for peace of mind, you can buy a three-year RoboCare extended warranty insurance plan, where if anything goes wrong or breaks, send it in and we'll fix it. You have a choice of models here. Yeah, they're all programmed in different ways. So look, here, this one. This one's here's the kneecapper model. And uh, this one next to it is called the crusher. And that one up there is the slicer. And over there is a very popular strangler model. And next year for the kitties, we'll be introducing our lollipop grabber model. And all our robots come in a choice of colors, steel gray, bright silver, hot pink, rusty brown, or rainbow, and the always popular birthday cake. What do you do with the older models? Well, we're trying something uh, innovative there, Rick. We're working on a deal with some professional wrestling outfits. We're looking forward to the day when we can sponsor a completely robotic class wrestling match. Everything would be robotic. The wrestlers, the announcers, the timekeepers, and the audience. And what about refs? Well, you got me there. That's a tough one. We haven't been able to come up with the technology yet that can produce a robot as blind as an actual pro wrestling ref. So for now, we're just going to have to use humans for that. Well, thank you very much for being here. Been a pleasure. No, you're, you're, you're really a swell stand-up guy after all. And believe me, if you ever want to get rid of that deadbeat comedy partner of yours, Jack, you got a complimentary robot hit coming to you, courtesy of the house. Thank you, Robert Corleone, president, CEO, and boss of bosses of the neighborly Rent-A-Robot Company. Well, Rick, he, he certainly sounds like a nice man. It's, it's good to know that the spirit of neighborliness is not dead. And that he understands what an offer that cannot be refused really means. And now we'd like to welcome a new sponsor to the Jack and Rick Show. The good people at Sunshine Pharmaceuticals, makers of Suppressa. Ah, the war in Ukraine! Inflation up a billion percent. Ah, Trump versus Biden again. Ah, another Pacifica fundraiser. Ah! Hey, hey, Dad, don't get mad. Calm down with Suppressa. Remember, when you get the urge to scream, Suppressa keeps you silent. Now on sale at your local pharmacy in the 5, 25, and family-sized 100-pound bags. 
And now in the Jack and Rick Radio Shack, we're moving to our nature corner to talk with a fascinating guest, a man who swims the Florida coast amidst the denizens of the deep, a man who literally swims with the fishes and actually tames the fierce beasts, a man they call the Shark Whisperer, Jean-Claude Jean. Merci. Glad to be here. Mr. Jean, do you actually swim alongside these fearsome fish? Say correct. Put on the old oxygen tank and flippers, and off I go. And they call you the Shark Whisperer. Why is that? When I'm in the, the water with them, I can sidle over to them and start whispering in their ears. It seems to calm them down and does not rustle their fins. I didn't know fish have ears. Yes, they're well hidden. But they're there, so I have to get right up close to them. And, and what do you say to them? Well, it depends on the individual fish, no? I start off with a few Broadway show tunes and adjust from there. I've always found success with the, with the songs of Sami Khan and uh, Jimmy Van Usen. Meredith Wilson has also been very good to me. 76 trombones and so on. You should see when I have a whole school of them marching. <laughs> now, these sharks, how big are these fierce beasts? The ones that I deal with are, I would say, uh, one, two, sometimes even three inches long. Three inches long? That doesn't sound like a very fierce shark. Well, strictly speaking, Jacques, these are not scientifically what you would call sharks. These are more like uh, guppies. Guppies? C'est correct. After I put on my keel, I step into the pool and swim among the guppies. Into a pool? Yes. I've got a cousin who lives down in Miami Beach, and they've got an inflatable pool in their backyard where we keep the guppies. I have to say, Mr. Jean, an inflatable pool filled with guppies doesn't really sound that dangerous. Oh, contraire, my big guild friend. Oh, contraire. If I go flat on one note of the Rogers and Hammerstein songbook, the guppies cause quite a stir. And how do you calm them down? Well, sometimes if you can't soothe them, you have to threaten them, Jack. I start singing the score of Miss Saigon, and they run for the hills. <laughs> it's quite a sight. Well, thank you so much, Jean-Claude Jean, the Shark Whisperer. Merci. Thanks. I certainly was living vicariously through every moment of that interview with the Shark Whisperer. Well, he had me at the word Sammy Khan. And speaking of words, now a word from our sponsor. Men, women, are your eyelashes weak and flabby, unsightly bulging and fat deposits? Do your eyelashes show signs of age and weariness and fall into your soup when you blink? Well, now get Jack and Rick's Eyelash Lasher, the lasher that actually lashes and bonds your eyelashes to your eyelids automatically, so there's no work on your part. As seen in the film A Clockwork Orange, these eyelash lashers will have your eyes popping with vitality in no time. That's Rick and Jack's Eyelash Lasher. Well, Rick, that's uh, all the time we have for today. And this is Jack and Rick saying this is Jack and Rick. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed is king. And you've been listening to Jack and Rick. It featured Rick Tooman all the way from Dallas, Texas, and your correspondent. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Arts Express, a new episode of Red Iowa. This is Peter Wise from Red Iowa. I'd like to introduce uh, my friend uh, Pat Hazel, a stupendous musician from the Midwest who's been playing for many decades now, especially blues, but also has investigated everything from electronic music to 
folk music in the former USSR. Pat comes from Burlington, Iowa. He's well known. He's a member of the uh, Iowa Blues Hall of Fame and has a lot to say and a lot of knowledge about music. So here's Pat Hazel and myself discussing his career. Peter Wyatt from Red Iowa, um, interviewing a fabulous musician, a fixture on the uh, blues scene for four decades. Pat, would you say? I started. I, well, I started uh, with my first band, 1960. 1960. 60. Yeah, so that 61. was even before surf music, wasn't it? About the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I never heard you play surf music. That was with a band where we actually made uh, some kind of an income. Yeah, very. I I, I say that uh, trepidation because of, you know, if, if you count a tenderloin fries and a shake as income, then <laughs> then that's the start. But I was playing boogie woogies uh, in front of crowds and audiences back in uh, probably '56. That's amazing. Okay, so that's way longer than four decades. It's like oh yeah, six absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, uh, you're self-taught, um, yeah. and your your taste in music is universal. It's what we'd call Catholic, I guess, because <laughs> well, I mean, Catholic well, there were a lot of Catholics that probably composed the music, but uh, yeah. also a lot of uh, Protestants like like Bach. Well, I, that's true. I'm using Catholic in the in the small. I know, scene. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I can't stand Bach, so maybe I you just can't don't stand like Bach. Bach. No, I don't like Bach. He's too mathematical for me. Too rigid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm uh, well. I, I have no right to voice an opinion about music. I, I love Bach. I really do. Uh, and uh, I and and but then also I I love Debussy. Yeah, and that's that's a good starting off point because I was listening to your record Solstice last night, mm -hmm. and so much of it. Reminded me of program music. I think that's what they used to call that, right? Debussy, he would do these sweeping, tonal kind of things. But illuminate me on that, whether I'm wrong. Well, I really wouldn't call Debussy necessarily program unless program music is where you're you're doing it as backdrop for something like a ballet or uh, uh, an opera or uh, where there's. There's supposed to be something else on the stage ah, okay. to captivate the audience in addition to the music. I see. So it's like the sidekick of... Uh, it's like, listen, I just, uh, two weeks ago, listened to a live production of the orchestra here in Iowa, uh, Southeast Iowa Symphony, doing uh, The Rite of Spring by Stravinsky. Uh -huh. Incredible piece. They did an incredible job on it, okay? Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult piece. And uh, difficult for a lot of listeners to even listen to. But the big thing is, well, where are the dancers? Ah. Without the dancers involved, it's like, why did Stravinsky play, compose that part? <laughs> yeah. Oh, because, because without seeing the dancers and yeah. what they're doing and how the music was responding or motivating or reacting or whatever to that dance move, you don't really get the full picture, and I don't think. Right, I, I, probably true. And a lot of pieces are, are, are done like that, uh, program music, and of course, all symphonies started with opera. I see, okay. Back originally. So circling back to the blues, which you, you consider yourself a blues musician. That's uh, what I've been primarily, known. Right? That's what I started playing back in the mid 50s. And uh, what I hammered out on the, the family piano, and anyway, it went from there, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's highly unusual to find somebody who's classically, well, into classical music. I, I don't think you'd say you're classically trained. Oh, no, no, no. Or you're classically interested. And I see that influence when you're even playing blues, uh, especially on, uh, I, I guess, the one I just mentioned. Um, but. Uh, 
it might yeah. have been another album. But you you started off big time, I mean, in the sense when the blues revival was coming to the United States by like the Eric Clapton's of the world, right? So you're... I guess. I mean, I really were pretty, pretty contemporary, actually, in yeah. terms of age. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but your first real, uh, the first band I ever heard of that you were in was Mother Blues. Yeah. And... You know, I was listening to that as well, and I, it was a fascinating album because you have blues, you have boogie woogie, you have, and then you have lots of horns, and you have like a, a, a Miles Davis influence, I guess, or yeah. uh, uh, fabulous. Uh, how did you get there from just playing boogie woogie? You just wanted to expand it. You wanted to in, in, uh, more instruments. Well, yeah, I mean boogie woogie. Uh, I well, I grew up. First, I mean, I grew up listening to horn bands. Ah. I, I grew up not listening. Rock and roll was not my inspiration at all. Really? That's interesting. Not in the 1950s. Huh. I mean, it, it was uh, it was everywhere. I mean, of course, I mean, 1950s rock, which was really most mostly R&B. A lot of the black R&B singers and players were doing the rock and roll hits of the 50s. That all changed in the 1960s. Right. To where well, it all became no much of white race guys. Music. It was no longer called race music then, right? Well, whatever. It wasn't It wasn't Black's planet. Yeah. It was the white English or whatever planet, you know? Uh -huh. And and that wasn't of interest to you at all. Not right? a, it was not so a sanitizer. I was, so, in, yeah. I was in college by then. And of course, when you get to be in college, you don't listen to that. That kid stuff. <laughs> Pat Boone was it, was it like Pat? Well, Boone? Pat Boone was around in the fifties. Yeah. Pat and and Pat Boone was uh, was good at what he did. Yeah, he what really he did. really was. That's you know, and uh, did some major hits back in the early fifties. Yeah. I mean, he was at it a long time, and still as a radio show on Sirius Records. Is that right? Yeah, right. yeah. It's a, not a bad show. Okay. I mean, the guy is a, is a major part of American music for what it's worth. On the par of Frank Sinatra or somebody like that? Oh, he, yeah, way beyond. Uh, Frank Sinatra was way beyond. I mean, yeah, Frank, yeah. Frank was Frank. Frank was Frank, <laughs> yeah. Frankly speaking, that's true. So, so let's say uh, the first time you heard Little Richard, did you get interested in, in doing Boogie Woogie Blues? I was long ended in the Boogie Woogie before I ever heard of Little Richard. Ah, okay. Yeah. And, and one of your influences was a fellow named Pete Johnson, correct? Pete Johnson and Hatta Brooks. Really? Hatta Brooks, right. Hatta Brooks uh, was actually from LA, but she uh, made a record, but uh, not being a name, took advantage of her association a brief association with Pete Johnson, <laughs> right. and included him on a record as a way to promote his name on the record, an album, and uh, sell the album. And know. inspire you, uh, and inspired me to uh, to play Boogie Woogie, which I think was probably unheard of, right, in Burlington? No, 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 because there was a teacher here, a guy that hmm. had... Uh, uh, Played with Walter Domarosh in the New York Philharmonic back in the late 19-teens mm. and went on. The legend has it Domarosh actually gave him uh, a, a Steinway piano, wow. which is now in our city museum. I've played it many times. Mm. But he also I've seen it. Yeah. He lived here in Burlington and gave piano lessons. And my brother was a recipient of some of the lessons. And he taught all the students boogie woogies because he felt they'd get more good out of boogie woogies than they would trying to play classical music. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think so too. And, I, and the thing is, I know a lot of people that, that took that. I mean, he was the piano teacher for for people like uh, uh, the guy that wrote "Fly Me Over the Fly Me to the Moon." Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, well, Martin Rule was. Uh, uh, Bart Howard's piano teacher. Yeah, amazing. So Burlington really did have a, oh, a, a fertile scene even before you started playing oh, music. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, Burlington was a, one of the leading ports on the Mississippi for movement from Chicago west. Okay. And that not only included corn and hogs and 
and things like that. Yeah. But it, it included culture. culture of all kinds. And, and it was a stopping off point for the trains. And I mean, or the Burlington Route, Railroad, you know, and uh, uh, the boats, the steamboats. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people came here and played. And uh, it was a, a it, to this day, is a perfect stop off point between Chicago and Kansas City, Minneapolis, St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Anybody touring through, they might be interested in stopping in Burlington for an off night show. Oh, and I have a son in the business, and he hires a lot of people like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. My dad did that. My dad booked a lot of bands for the local Memorial Auditorium back in the uh, late 30s and the 1940s, before I was born. Mm -hmm. And that was one of his businesses, booking bands like that. So your entire family really is, has been involved in music. It's been a decades. kind of in a way, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're the most famous, if you can say that. I'm the only one that really did it, you know, professionally as such. Yeah. And it was so fertile here, hearing so many different kinds of music, I guess, that you decided to branch out. I mean, you stuck to Boogie Woogie, but then you learn, you learn jazz, if you can learn jazz, I guess. And well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a blues player, you know, and, and okay. blues is really uh, Boogie Woogie's, but maybe in various rhythmic forms that's mm -hmm. a bigger a bigger thing than just boogie woogie it's like a nested russian doll kind of thing yeah i mean as blues tend to be slower in pace and, and and at my age i prefer just blues <laughs> you know and uh, uh that's basically what i started with and uh and uh, the, the older i get the more i appreciate slow music Savage. If you're if you're listening to this right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Barry Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John Savage, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country today. So hang in there. All right. Now with the Book Corner, reporting from Manchester, England, and the Morning Star, Brett Gregory on David Archibald's Tracking Loesch, exploring the work of the social realist director's films like The Wind That Shakes the Barley, Land and Freedom, and Bread and Roses, who, quote, unlike literally all his contemporaries, never succumbed to the siren call of Hollywood. Hi, my name's Brett Gregory and I'm an independent screenwriter, director and producer in Manchester in the UK. My latest release is the working class feature film Nobody Loves You and You Don't Deserve to Exist. I also write about film and what follows is my review of Dr David Archibald's latest book which explores the work and politics of the British film director Ken Loach. This review first appeared in the socialist newspaper The Morning Star and the book published by Edinburgh University Press, is called Tracking Loach. David Archibald's book, Tracking Loach, is an academic celebration of Ken Loach's 60-year career in socialist filmmaking and political activism. It is also an extremely timely publication in that Loach's latest film, The Old Oak, 
receiving its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in 2023. The author's unique approach is to prioritise the contextual mechanics of film production studies over the theoretical speculation of critical screen studies, arguing that the reflective observation of the methodologies and logistics involved in preparing, shooting and exhibiting a feature film should elicit a complementary understanding of a filmmaker's aesthetic. This reminds me of a television interview with David Niven from the 1970s, where he asks something along the lines of, how can a film critic write a decent review if they've never actually made a movie themselves? During Archibald's ethnographic pursuit of Loach's poetic and political process, his primary sources of data are the annotations, interviews, shooting documents, digital footage and photographs he accrues while being physically present during the production and exhibition of Loach's working-class comedy drama set in Glasgow, The Angel's Share, from 2012. The author's unique approach is to prioritise the contextual mechanics of film production studies over the theoretical speculation of critical screen studies, arguing that the reflective observation of the methodologies and logistics involved in preparing, shooting and exhibiting a feature film should elicit a complementary understanding of a filmmaker's aesthetic. To accompany him on his journey, the author also draws on a wide variety of historical and theoretical secondary sources, including the British Film Institute's Ken Loach archive. And I, personally, found a number of his scholarly citations to be just as illuminating as his on-set observations. For example, when working alongside his early screenwriting partner, Jim Allen, Archibald highlights that Loach's television productions in the late 1960s and early 1970s were influenced by the political ideas of Leon Trotsky, in that the UK's established democratic system was seen to be inadequate with regards to the economic interests of the proletariat. Following on from this, it is argued that Loach's films generally aim to reveal to the audience, either explicitly or implicitly, the harsh realities, exploitation and despair of working class experience. And, in turn, that capitalism is not a natural, normal or inevitable way of ordering or governing society. With this in mind, the socialist concerns of Loach's oeuvre have generally transitioned from addressing issues such as organised labour in the big flame in 1969 and the rank and file in 1971, to unorganised labour in riffraff in 1991 and the navigators in 2001, and then on to unemployed labour in Sweet 16 in 2002 and I, Daniel Blake in 2016. While such films could be viewed as a war artist's mournful depiction of socio-economic casualties lying strewn across a neoliberalist battlefield, Archibald posits with reference to the Italian historian Enzo Traverso that they can also be understood as evidential open wounds, which the left need to nurse so the embers of possibility can once again be reignited. Aware of Raymond Williams' contention that to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing, the author proceeds to cite Newland and Hoyle's view that in some ways Gloach's creative output in the 21st century has begun to move away from the wholly melancholic art cinema of, say, My Name is Joe from 1998 and on towards the Ealing comedy tradition with films like Looking for Eric in 2009 and The Angel's Share in 2012. Indeed, as Loach himself states in a footnote, not every film has to end with a fist clenched in the air. Loach is a social realist director with the eye of a sympathetic documentarian, influenced by, amongst other things, Joan Litwood's Theatre Workshop, the free cinema movement and the 20th Century Current Affairs programme World in Action. Moreover, similar to the generic conventions exhibited in films from the Italian neo-realist movement such as Rome Open City in 1945 and The Bicycle Thieves in 1948, 
Archibald frequently underscores Loach's overarching quest to, paradoxically, recreate spontaneity, authenticity and truth in his fictional work by employing predominantly naturalistic filmmaking techniques. By shooting at a real location instead of in an artificial studio, Lotus' objective is to not only encourage the actors to respond to their surrounding environment like recognisable everyday human beings, but to also display the historical power relations which are inscribed into, for example, the municipal buildings which overshadow them. Echoing John Grierson's principle of actuality, Loach tends to shoot static medium long shots with the filming apparatus and its crew as far away from the action as possible. A tactical attempt to motivate the audience to decide what is important and what to focus on, as if they themselves are simply observing matters from across the street. In turn, this sense of things really happening is often reinforced by natural lighting during a shoot via the sky for exteriors or windows for interiors and by way of continuity editing in post-production so as not to interfere with the actors on screen performances and the linear story they are striving to tell. Of course, to achieve the illusion of the first time, casting is crucial and Loach's production team frequently enlists non-professional or amateur actors as a consequence. David Bradley as Billy Casper in Cares in 1969, Chrissy Rock as Maggie Conlon in Ladybird, Ladybird in 1994, and Martin Comston as Liam in Sweet Sixteen in 2002 are just three notable examples. As well as providing a real-world opportunity for a filmmaker to collaborate, explore and develop a character more or less from scratch, Jennifer Beth Spiegel points out that casting non-professional or amateur actors is also good for marketing, in that it draws the attention of the popular press who presume that these ordinary individuals are pure and unsullied by the elbow grease of the film industry and the ego of show business. An important factor in this process is, unlike most other independent British production companies, Ken Loach and Rebecca O'Brien's 16 films has become well-financed and self-sufficient over the decades. And so, as a result, they have the time to carry out lengthy scouting missions in order to locate and secure the right actor for the right role. That is, to achieve a sense of very similitude on screen and in the minds of the audience, Loach et al. seek out and cast performers who, besides their physical appearance, not only share similar personality traits with the characters they are penciled in to play, but who also originate from similar socio-economic backgrounds or circumstances. This approach is exemplified by the casting of Paul Brannigan as Gareth O'Connor in The Angel's Share, in that the film's screenwriter, Paul Laverty, first encountered him while conducting research at Strathclyde Police's Violence Reduction Unit. As Archibald relates, in line with his on-screen character, Brannigan, born in Glasgow's East End, had been imprisoned for violent crimes and gangland feuding, but was also attempting to go straight. Of course, critics will argue that the casting of non-professional actors undermines the history and craft of acting itself. The experience involved, the knowledge accumulated, the techniques learned, the talent nurtured. For example, in an interview with the author, the actor Roger Allen points out that amateur actors would be at a loss in a Molière play. While this may be true, a reasonable response would be, what other practical routes are there available in the UK for the working class to climb up onto the silver screen and represent their identities, communities and histories fairly? In an industry predominantly based in London and owned, run and populated by the middle class and their superiors, the costs involved to train as an actor are astronomical to an ordinary person. And the distance to travel, particularly for those in the north of the country, preposterous. Indeed, the few British working class actors who are lucky enough to enjoy a public platform have consistently highlighted this socio-cultural system of privilege, prejudice 
and exclusion over recent years. While Christopher Eccleston asserts that the working class are not wanted in the arts anymore, James McAvoy argues that the dominance of privately educated British actors in the 21st century is damaging for society. In turn, Gary Oldman has stated that he is unable to direct a follow-up to his incendiary Nil by Mouth from 1997 because they don't want another one. They want four weddings and a funeral. In light of these socio-economic and ideological realities, Bloch's casting of non-professional and amateur actors, together with the working-class stories he tells and the working-class worlds he creates, should be regarded not simply as an aesthetic choice or even socialist posturing. That is, under the stifling, reductive right-wing administration which we are all currently enduring in the UK, enabled on a day-to-day basis by numerous obsequious and self-serving cultural institutions and organisations, it could be reasonably argued that such an approach is, in truth, a revolutionary act. In his epilogue, Archibald includes an apposite quote from the Spanish filmmaker Luis Bunel. A writer or painter cannot change the world, but they can keep an essential margin of non-conformity alive. Thanks to them, the powerful can never affirm that everyone agrees with their acts. In Tracking Loach, there is so much more to discover and learn from its unique, rigorous and genuinely heartfelt exploration of one of the maestros of modern British cinema and modern British politics, Ken Loach. It is highly recommended. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.